this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 61, and we're recording on Friday, July 11th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Here we are. I'm back. 11 you are. I had a little vacation. Glad or to have you not back. Not really a vacation. I just had a, had a week off. Amanda and I did not burn the place down without you last you didn't, week. You didn't... Um, there were some things I'm glad I wasn't around for. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. I, think I can't we'll say any more a, about that. We'll make a secret bank of uncomfortable conversation topics that uh, she and I will save for the shows that you sit out on. Yeah. Um, that'd be very helpful. I would appreciate that. Please, please do that. I do delight in knowing when you're squirming in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we now have two possible show titles already, so let's, uh, <laughs> so let's, let's do follow-up. Yeah, we want to, first, before we get into the news of the week and do follow-up, I want to do a quick shout-out to let our listeners know that we've sent out the first selection for our new monthly book subscription service. It's one great new release once a month, handpicked by us because it's awesome. Uh, all sorts of genres, all kinds of books are up for grabs, but every month it'll be a different book that we love. Uh, you can go to riotread.com to get more information. It's 30 bucks a month, um, about the cost of a new hardcover, uh, plus tax from an indie bookstore, um, and we'll ship them to you instead. So think of us as your bookstore for once a month. The first title has been revealed, uh, but we're not going to tell you just in case you happened to subscribe and you haven't opened your package yet. Uh, you can go to riotread.com again to get information. Click on four subscribers if you want to see what the pick has been and join us. Let us send you awesome book mail. Um, if you subscribe by by the 15th of July, you will be able to get the August selection, uh, which is also awesome. And just to, we can say without saying, but um, there's a dedicated podcast that goes along with it. Right. So that's part of the thing. There's a whole bunch of content um, there already for the first pick. I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten posts about and around um, this month's pick. So there's a lot of other um, things to do. One of those things is there's a live chat with the author. I almost said the name. I almost <laughs> screwed it up. Um, on August 5th, that if you do subscribe or just want to participate in without subscribing, you're welcome to join there. So we're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, and we're... I, we're having a lot of fun with it and yeah, I think going to continue to figure out cool things to do. Yeah, it's kind of our take on the book club. And so every month uh, you'll receive a book and we'll build out content at riotread.com uh, for subscribers and for anyone who's read the book who's interested. Uh, and it varies, you know, the way the Book Riot stuff does mm -hmm. vary from really fun, light stuff to more serious uh, considerations of the themes in the book and, and what happens. And of course, it'll be different depending on what the content of the book is. But we're having a lot of fun behind the scenes working on it. Our contributors are falling all over each other, um, <laughs> volunteering to write things for these books to help us pick them. Um, we have the first five selections locked down, and uh, they're pretty different from each other, which is which is a goal mm -hmm. of ours. Um, but everything is great. Um, it's a good.
good, fun way, we think, to stretch your reading horizon. So uh, hop on board, riotread.com, and let us send you a book a month. Yep. You want to talk about something happy? Yeah, let's do. So Spencer Collins, nine-year-old Spencer Collins of Leewood, Kansas, we've talked about before, who got a citation from the city of Leewood for um, the illegality of his little free library in the front yard of his house. Um, became a national story in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Daniel it, Handler, Lemony Snicket was speaking out for him. Yeah, right. That's that's a big deal when you get uh, Mr. Snicket on your side. Um, basically, the the uh, groundswell of consternation um, about this led the city council to enact a moratorium on the prohibition against little free libraries as freestanding structures. Uh, so that will last until October 20th. After which time, I have no idea. Maybe they'll go back to being jerks. I'm not sure. I just hope that that's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, it's only a temporary. It's a temporary solution because they could do that right now. And I guess the idea is they can discuss changing the actual ordinance mm-hmm. um, going forward. But that, can, that usually takes 60 to 90 days. So this is something they could do right now. And Spencer went and spoke in front of the city council and said that he wanted them to allow little free libraries because he loves to read and lots of people in the neighborhood had used the library. The books were already changing. Uh, so Spencer Collins, I think, is our hero of the week. I think we haven't so. had one in a while. Well, I think he might have been before. Did we say that? I we need to make this official. We do. Um, Spencer be- Collins, you are the hero of the week. And you know what? If he was before and he is this week, good. I mean, good on him. Yeah. What, what are we going to do? We're <laughs> we gonna can be, have repeat feel, heroes. We're this gonna is feel our show. Bad about that? <laughs> right. No. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Good. I was worried we're the worst people in the world for a second. We get to make these rules, man. Yeah, that's true. All we're right. In charge. Let's do our first sponsor. Our first sponsor is 99designs. They are back again this week. Uh, 99designs is a really cool take on a one-stop design shop. If you need a logo for your business, you want to do a t-shirt, a car wrap, whatever. They have 310,000, more than 310,000 graphic designers available. And the way it works is really pretty awesome. Um, you go to 99designs.com. If you go to 99designs.com slash book riot, they will know that you came from us and you'll get a special deal that I'm going to tell you about in a second. You complete a pack of information about what you're looking for, you know, what your business is or what the logo should look like, which colors you're into, all that stuff. Um, you then get a bunch of designs back from a bunch of different designers who will be competing for your business. And over the course of seven days, uh, you get to give each one of them feedback about the designs that they've started on and help them narrow it and really you know, get their design to being as close to what you want as it can be. Then at the end, you pick basically the winner. You pick the logo or the design that you're going to go forward with. And that designer wins, basically wins your account, wins the money um, that you have spent. Um, you know, branding is the face of your business. If you're starting a business, if you have a web presence, you want a consistent look across your website, your Twitter account, your Facebook page, your Tumblr, all of that stuff. And the folks at 99designs can help you achieve that. Uh, if this sounds like something that you're into, if you need a book cover, they do that too. We know lots of Book Riot listeners uh, are writers. Maybe you're thinking about self-publishing something or doing a Kickstarter project. You name it, they can help you design it. Go to 99designs.com slash bookriot, and you'll get a $99 power pack of services for free from us. Pretty sweet. I rem- You remember doing the logo for your blog or like the header? Uh, I remember like kind of cobbling together yes, the first exactly. one, knowing 
actually nothing about image design. And then after that, I just admitted that I knew nothing about image design and I paid someone. I was just wishing that when I had done um, my dearly loved and departed reading eight, the Reading 8 blog, that I had known about something like this. Because it would have been worth you know, shelling out a little money to see what people could come up with. Because it took me forever. I was never really happy with it. Um, so anytime we're going to show off something to people anywhere, really, but mm-hmm. especially I know a lot of you have blogs and websites or work for and with people who need blogs and websites, this is something you should check out. Yeah, I think it's really cool to have the option to choose between a bunch of different yeah. designers. I remember when I was doing my blog design, like, you know, not really knowing other than friends referrals who was good. Yes. Um, but then you still have to hope that the person who is technically good understands your vibe and what you're going for and that you'll be able to communicate effectively with each other. So I like that you get to try a bunch of the steps of that creative process with the designers that work at 99designs.com uh, that you put out there what you're looking for and you get to see a bunch of choices and start to hone in on which ones really get you yeah. and are coming up with the ideas that you like. We do, you know, image related stuff at Book Riot all the time and like and we've all been working together for three years <laughs> and still can't agree. No, on that's right. That's absolutely quickly. right. So uh, I think it would be really cool to be able to see a bunch of stuff. Um, and again, the deal that's available, go to 99designs.com slash book riot and you'll get the $99 power pack of services for free. Uh, so thanks to them for sponsoring the show. If you do this and you get an awesome design, please email us. Oh, podcast we want to see it. We want to see it so bad. Com. Yeah, we want to see Especially like if you make a super nerdy t-shirt or something, mm-hmm. we would love to see it yes, and buy one. we would. Definitely would. Um, let's go to this summer's miniseries produced by HBO. Um, it'd be the, the most boring HBO series of all time, but it's Amazon v. Hachette. Um, can Judge Judy be in charge or yeah, something? Yeah, I was like, thinking, I like, like, I don't know who need, this would be. The, we need some kind of pizzazz to this drama. Yeah, maybe we could get, like, um, Richard Dreyfus to play a judge or something like that. Anyway, so... <laughs> I'm the, watching it. I the, am The so most recent um, episode is Amazon wrote basically an open letter slash offer to Hachette saying, and Hachette's authors basically saying, I've got an idea. Why don't we give... A hundred percent of the revenue um, from all titles sold on Amazon that are Hachette authors to the authors. So Hachette won't take any money, Amazon won't take any money, and the authors will give it all. Hundred percent royalties, which is both an evil genius and absurd offer. It's evil genius because it's awesome PR for Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's absurd because Amazon takes only. 30% right and sell books at a loss so <laughs> so and, and whereas Hachette is that's their business well, and it's it's shady evil genius activity to make an offer that you know yes that the other party that the receiving party is never going to take you up on you know you right. get to make this generous offer and get the PR with the full knowledge that you're not actually taking the risk of having anyone call your bluff and say mm-hmm. yes we will do that thing uh, let's give 100% of the royalties this to me it feels a little like a little insulting to the intelligence of authors mm-hmm. and so Hachette too. that right. that Amazon. This is, I think Amazon is generally pretty PR savvy, and they definitely have the evil genius thing on their side. But to roll out thinking that they could make this offer, and I guess hoping that authors would see it as a serious offer and not an offer that was made only because they knew it wouldn't 
that they wouldn't be taken up on it and, mm-hmm. you know, start championing, oh, look, Amazon uh, is our friend and is in favor of us. And they want us to have 100% royalties, which I have to admit, I've seen some authors who have responded that way. And so it has worked uh, for Amazon to some degree. But that they played it out that way makes me feel a little squicky, makes me feel like, come on, give us a little credit. Is it just me or is this a sign of weakness on Amazon's part? That's kind of how I'm reading it. Like, there's a certain evil genius to it. But if you really feel good about your position, you don't do this. You know, I can't decide if I think it's a sign of weakness or if Amazon is so overconfident that Mm. they're like, that they're in their strategy room, like, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to offer them 100% royalties, and then they'll all believe that we're really on their side. I mean, I I guess the way I was reading is that Amazon's gotten such bad press about this whole thing. I mean, Colbert, and then you Mm -hmm. had this petition from Stephen King and James Patterson, a bunch of big-time authors supporting a shed, and you've had Gladwell go on rants yeah. about Amazon, like Amazon's just getting destroyed well, and they're in backing, the media. I think you're right that there is some weakness showing here and Amazon is backing down. Um, Amanda and I were talking last week about how sometimes, or, or how some of the ty- the Hachette titles that have gotten a lot of press, Amazon has magically brought back. Yeah, we the, talked about that before as well yeah, with the, the order. Right, the order and the buy buttons for them. And I think it happened to Megan Abbott's book, The Fever, mm. at least for uh, for some folks. Uh, but Ca- California by Eden Lepucky, which is the title that Sherman Alexie recommended as the Hachette pick that, you know, if you want to stick up your middle finger to Amazon, go order this Hachette title from Powell's, um, which is an indie bookstore in Portland. And that push for her book, California, which just came out this week, um, had her on the bestseller list before the book was even. Yeah was even published um, and made it one of Powell's most purchased books, I think, of all time, um, or most pre-ordered books. Uh, she signed 10,000 copies. Did you yeah. see that? Right. And so when the book, the book was released on Tuesday of this week um, on the 8th, and the buy buttons for it do exist on Amazon mm-hmm. now, and it does not say a one to two month wait. Um, so that book has gotten a big enough push and enough publicity that Amazon, I guess, is hoping that enough people are hearing about the book, but not hearing about all of the drama mm-hmm. around how the book has gotten publicity, that they'll be going to Amazon to look for it and ordering it. Um, and so they have made that available to people who do it. There, there are some chinks in the armor, I think. I I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've been watching sports for so long. I always take like when some athlete or coach does something like this and calls out the other side for whatever reason. I'm like, if you really were confident that you were going to kick somebody's butt, you just shut up and wait to kick their butt. Mm. You know, you don't do stuff like this. That's kind of my take. Yeah, I am. I'm deep in my summer of West Wing. And so I'm reading 17 different strategies. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Everything that happens. Yeah, that's right. It could be it could be any number of things. All right. Let's let's um, we'll come back to this next story in a minute. But while we're on book sales, um, Publishers Weekly um, posted the top 20 best-selling books um, of 2014 so far. The first one is According to Nielsen, which is a a much broader, um, kind of the whole trade Mm -hmm. industry together, and then also had Amazon's Kindle top 20. Um, I linked to this uh, in Critical Link the other day, and then I posted on Facebook with the with the headline, this is somewhat depressing, and got some (laughs) flack for it. Um, For the, I mean... People can give me flack. That's not the problem. But so here's here's what I said um, after someone called flack. Basically, there are, it's it's okay. So <laughs> divergent 
Insurgent and Allegiant are one, two, and four. Okay. Mm. Uh, On the Nielsen top 20. One, three, and four. One, three, and four, excuse me. The Fault in Our Stars is two. Then mm-hmm. five and six are different versions of The Fault in Our Stars. One's a hardcover, one's the movie tie-in. And number seven is another John Green title, Looking for the Alaska, who's what's just clearly writing The Fault in Our Stars coattails. So the top, of the top, the top seven are from two authors. Three of the bottom ten are related to the movie Frozen. Right, so 10 through 20, there's Frozen, there's a junior novelization. Oh, sorry, four. Four, four. yeah. Um, there's, there's a novelization, and then there's a junior novelization, and then there's a spinoff, A Journey to the Ice Palace. There's A Tale of Two Sisters and Big Snowman. So that's five, as I count. Oh. Five Frozen-related titles. Boy, yep, five. Um, there it then is. You throw two about Minecraft. Two, two Minecraft handbooks, and Minecraft <laughs> is a popular video game. Dr. Uh, Seuss is holding strong Dr. at the places Seuss, you'll go at number 12. Which is getting the graduation bump. Like, that's every yep. May and June. That mm-hmm. sells a million. So then that leaves number eight, Jeff Kinney's Hard Luck. Yep. Um... Let's see, Jesus Calling, Enjoying Peace by Sarah Young at uh, number nine. And The Goldfinch. Heaven is for Real at 11. Oh, right. And then Heaven is for Real, and Heaven for Real at 14. 14. And The Goldfinch. And The Goldfinch at 20. So at 20. there's actually like seven titles here. Yeah. Altogether. I mean, I kind of group Divergent and Surgeon and Allegiant as one title. I mean, that's not fair, but it's the same series. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when I, all I said is that, a somewhat depressing list of the best-selling books. And I, people thought, I think, well, I know some of them said, well, don't be a YA snob. That's not all what I'm trying to say. No. Listen, if it was 20 different YA titles, great. That would yeah. be fine. What I don't like is the homogeny and the top heaviness of right, this. Right, and YA doesn't even dominate this list necessarily. Well, like depends on Frozen, how you look at it. I mean, there's five Frozen, two Minecraft, like that's sort of kids yeah. and gaming. Mm-hmm. The, the Frozen books are by Disney and Random House and the Minecraft books are Scholastic, which, you know, largely for kids. Mm-hmm. The Jeff Kinney book is a kid's book. Um, it is amazing how many of our for people that are I was like, ostensibly pitched at people not adults. I was just 99% wrong about this list. I saw Publishers Weekly tweet tweet that it was out, and so I played the game with myself that you mm-hmm. and I like to play when Publishers yeah, Weekly Yeah, I thought about does. doing that, but then I saw the list. I mean, that's just going <laughs> to be a game of Rebecca being wrong for like three minutes. It would just be the gong show over yeah. and over. Um, but I made a little, like, I jotted down a little list on my desk of, like, what are some of the titles that I think would be in this Top twenty, and mm-hmm. you know, I was guessing like "Boy Snowbird" by Helen Oyegemi, no, which got we're, a we're bunch such of press snob. early I mean, in we're the lit year. Thick people, like we get a whole wacky but, sense of yeah, what's popular. Yeah, but I guess like there's, you know, there's always a new James Patterson. You think that's going to show up yeah. on a top twenty? I did think about uh, Divergent. I thought maybe Mockingjay uh, would continue to make an appearance with those movies coming out. I was, I was trying to represent, uh, but man, I, w- I was 99% wrong. Um, the Goldfinch was the only one. And so few of them published that, this year. I mean, yeah, that's and, the other thing. I guess I was, uh, I tend to think about these lists as separated by adult titles, YA titles, kids titles, because that's the way we typically see the mm-hmm. list. That's the way the New York times does it. So I also just hadn't processed when I made my little guess list about Oh, oh, this will be kids' books and YA books and adult books all together, um, and not just the new ones. Like I would like to see a list of the top twenty best-selling new books of twenty fourteen. Yeah, I mean, the Silkworm, um, I'm sure, would be on there, right. and some other things. Um, so that's that's uh, the the lack of 
well, diversity of all kinds. Like forget for a moment what we always talk about and people don't talk about enough is that this, as far as I can tell, these are all books by white people. Mm -hmm. Um, And as far as I can tell, there isn't, there isn't one nonfiction Right, I guess um, mine, the handbook for the game is technically nonfiction. But heaven that's, is for real is like marketed as Christian nonfiction, which is a dicey genre. Um, I'm to not, be fair, just, I, we're just gonna leave. Yeah, that. I mean, I understand what you mean, but like <laughs> it's a little. Um, and it's just what. So what I would like to see, I don't really care what books they are, but I'd like there to be a, a, a wider range of what's represented in this. Like it's crazy to me that five different ISBNs of the fault in our stars are on this. Uh-huh. Like it's, yeah. it's, you would think that the fragmentation of that title would, would move them down. But if anything, it just shows how top heavy mm-hmm. this is and how bad books are at like surfacing new stuff that people are interested in. Like yeah, I, these are all movie driven. Like look how many of them, you've got to think that the Divergent and Surgeon Legion are propped up by the movie. Fault in Our Stars propped up by a movie. And Frozen propped up by a movie. So will The Giver pop up on this yeah. list for the, the second Heaven half is for of Real the year. is a movie tie-in. So like at least half the books here are just writing on films coattails, which I don't like as a book lover. I just don't like that. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it either. And it, it also, I think, is just an uncomfortable, this list is an uncomfortable reminder of how much book sales really cluster um, yeah. at the oh, top end yeah. and the bottom. So end. Like, it's, a, it's a really small group of titles that take a really big chunk of the total book sales uh, in any given year. Mm. And then all of the other titles sort of trickle around. And, and you've got the mid list that's, you know, like a bunch of titles that do a respectable number of sales, but are never going to crack yeah. the bestseller list. And then there are a, a bunch of, I don't, I don't think there's even a term for what's below the mid list. No one wants to call it like the bottom. I think the long tail is the <laughs> euphemism we use for things that don't sell. The, yeah. The bottom list. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the butt list. That's what they can call it. I mean, the Goldfinch cracks 20 and that's like both exciting and depressing for one thing, because it's mm-hmm. like that book, Donna Tartt, people love her. The book is good. It won a huge prize. Like I'd say uh, some huge percentage of the people I know who read literary fiction have read that book and bought yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And like all of that gets you to the very bottom of the, right. of the bestseller list. And I just don't, I wish we had numbers. God, Darn it, like the thing we would like, it would be so interesting to know. Like, what's the difference between one and 20 in terms of unit sales? Right. Yeah. And one being divergent. Divergent. Yeah. How many has that sold versus the Goldfinch? Mm-hmm. I've, I just feel like, okay, so this is. No, this is the Nielsen ratings just according to the pure number of sales per ISBN. And I get that. And it's interesting to see it. But I would be so much more interested in an actual list of the top 20 titles. Um, what do you mean? Like actual. 20 unique titles rather than 20 unique oh, ISBNs. So like, throw out, <clears throat> so throughout the, so you really want right, like the next like, 10, basically. Yeah, even like condense them and weight them. So you mm-hmm. it, like push together the Fault in Our Stars paperback, the Fault in Our Stars hardcover, and the Fault in Our Stars movie tie in. Like lump them all together, call it the Fault in Our Stars, period. Well, I remember, um, um, I guess it was two years ago, I did a post where the bookseller, which is an, um, a British um, publishing magazine, they actually get some numbers from the British publishing press about the the actual dollar sales of each book. And that was, it was 2013 because it was a year after Fifty Shades came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the top of the list was like, it was so 
striking. How like the top 10 sold more than like the next top mm-hmm. 50 combined, yeah. if well, not since, more than that. Since you mentioned 50 shades of gray, it's not interesting. Yeah. That that's not on here. And the 50 shades yeah. thing seems to be over. basically over. Yeah. I wonder if then when the movie comes out, whenever that's coming out next spring, I guess. Yeah. The, um, I think the first trailers are supposed to come out in September and the, I think the movie is scheduled for around Valentine's day. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's the best selling books of 2014. And the thing Jeff took the most heat for last week, uh, we'll try to, <laughs> we should talk ex- about that every well, week. Yeah. Let's exculpate. I exculpated myself from that. So let's talk about something else. Cool. Um, this is, so the, the, the mad geniuses at the MIT media lab. Ooh, I haven't looked at this yet. So tell oh, me all okay. about it. So the MIT media lab, they're basically kind of like the, the Willy Wonka's chocolate factory of tech stuff. Um, <laughs> And they were the they were the people that came up with e ink that sort of spawned the modern ebook reading revolution as we oh, know it. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, they have a new thing out called the finger reader, which is a ring you put on your finger, and it's meant to help blind people read text. Sweet. Um, so it's got a little camera, and it has optical text recognition and alignment. So basically, if you run your finger underneath a line of text, the camera will recognize it, and then the voice chip will read it to you. Um, That is awesome. And the prototype was produced by a 3D printer. So there's like three magic technologies all in one here. It's like OCR, 3D printing, um, voice synthesis, and basically some, some input to tell you when you're actually on it. So and I was like, well, don't people have Braille? But then I'm like, duh, like, think of how much reading we do now. And that's Braille online, books are really expensive really to expensive, produce. And there's not that many of them, right. all things considered. But this one, you could read the screen. You could read your iPhone. Uh, you could read any kind of text that you want. It's a prototype now. Um, and they say there's a couple things that hard. One thing you might imagine is how does a blind person know where to start? That's what I was just about to Yeah. <laughs> to so ask. there's like, a couple of things like they're working on where the, the, the camera, the, the finger will vibrate until you've begun the beginning of a line. So if it's not oh, picking up any, in, any information, it'll vibrate. And then once it stops, you move at a different and speed. And will it help you move it straight? Like yes. in a straight yes. left to it'll right? help you move it straight line. So like it could be that um, they're still working this out, but like a different part of the ring might vibrate if you have to move it up or down. Um, Man, I like living in the future, yeah. Jeff. So I don't know how any of this t- technology works, but, and it's, again, it's still kind of clunky because I'll, I'll insert a link and you can see the picture. So mm-hmm. there's like a cord that goes to a giant battery because as you imagine, like there's not a lot of room on a battery oh, for right. a ring and sort of these things kind of like, they're thinking maybe at some point it might be like the ring might be attached to a band, a wristband that's just a battery mm. um, or, or something. Or you could like that. USB power it from your laptop right. or something. Right. So they say... The potential market includes 11.2 million people in the U.S. with vision impairment. I didn't realize there was that many people well, and think for about, starters. Like, I think there are other applications of this, too, like kids yeah, learning, learning, to, kids read. learning yep. to read, um, pointing their fingers and the finger reader at words in a book mm-hmm. that say that that say it out loud to them. It could be, it could have, I'm, you know, we're not teachers of kids in elementary school, but I think it would have really interesting possible uses for classrooms and for kids that are having a hard time learning how to read or, or need that, uh, auto need that auditory component. Mm-hmm. Really? This is, I'm looking at this thing now and it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so they interviewed, um, Jerry Barriere, who is, um, 
born blind. He's 62 years, years old, and he works with the uh, Center for Helping Blind People Get Around in the World. And he said, think about things like reading the forms at the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Like, you might want to be able to say, you know, what that consent form says before you sign it for a procedure yeah. for you or your kid or a loved one. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, I think this is kind of amazing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll see. They've been working on it for three years. There's still a lot of hurdles to get over to making it for the mass market. Like who knows how expensive it would be. Um, but uh, you could check do it a out. sweet Kickstarter for this. I, I think uh, my sense is the M- MIT media lab doesn't have funding trouble. I think you're probably right, but I think it's more of a it's a more of a technical concern. Um, yeah. So anyway, if you work all those details out, people will want to give you money for yeah, these things. Right. There's got to be a grant. Yeah. No, I think they them. they've got corporate sponsorship mm-hmm. and patent cross licenses, and I, again, I, I don't want to underplay it. Maybe they yeah. do could use ten million dollars. I don't know, but I think funding in general for the MIT yeah. Media well, Lab is not the that would be since you mentioned corporate sponsors that's like talk about an evil genius move like Amazon should throw a couple million dollars mm. <laughs> to this project or to some other big project about you know advancing technology to make reading material accessible uh, to more people or more reading material accessible to more people and and let themselves look like good guys <laughs> Let themselves. How about let's Help, do a little less maybe? time looking like a good guy and a little more time being a good guy. I mean, if we're talking about evil genius strategies, I yeah. don't think we're really concerned about the likelihood of actually being a good guy. I don't think Amazon wants to actually be a good guy. They just want to be the top guy. Yeah. So that's the finger reader. So that's pretty cool. Um, not sure about that name, but you know what? That's a small point. Uh, and that could always change. I, that could always change. I should have wrapped this story in with the the uh, best selling books of. Um, 2014 mm-hmm. so far. This is a, this is um, from again from Publishers Weekly, uh, Nielsen Book Scan. It was it was part of the same study that Nielsen does a half year about just overall book sales. Mm-hmm. This says sales of both hardcovers and trade paperbacks, the industry's two largest print categories, were up two percent in the first six months of the year. All right, leading to an overall one percent gain in print sales at outlet that report to BookScan. The best performing format in the period was board books, up seventeen percent. Seventeen percent. Baby boom, I guess, maybe. I don't know. I don't know and why that would sales be. Sales of physical audiobooks finished the first half with a 6% increase, which I find that really surprising. Is, are we talking about CDs? Like, yeah. what are we talking about right physical there? Physical audiobooks. That, that is, is crazy. CDs. That's, that is crazy. Because all the stuff that we've seen about the audiobook boom has centered around digital mm-hmm. audiobooks, you know, MP3s and stuff that you download from Audible. And libraries can lend digital versions of audiobooks. And so I, I thought we would see that number go up, but actual physical audiobook sales. And those things are not cheap. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So the decline, the interesting decline here is that unit sales of mass market paperbacks. Yeah, ebooks are just destroying mass market yeah, paperbacks. Yeah, fell 12% so far this year. And that it must be an ebook. Yeah. That's got to be an ebook tension thing because a new mass market paperback um, like is usually 699 or mm-hmm. 799 and the example that I just use because it's available to me is that um, Sarah McLean who's my favorite romance writer her books come out new in mass market paperback um, which is pretty common for romance where in other genres and in mainstream literary fiction you know you come out in hardcover first and then paperback and then if you sell the way Dan Brown sell, sells mm-hmm. then eventually you get mass market, but you can buy a new mass market paperback of one of her new books for, I think, $7.99, but the ebook will be $4.99. Um, so those yeah. 
they're they're cutting into that price point for sure for those. A um, couple other things is interesting. Juvenile fiction, which is YA, mm-hmm. um, was up huge. Um, where is 14%? it? 14 percent. Adult by, nonfiction yeah. um, was about the same, just okay. is down less than one percent. Adult fiction down 13 percent year over year. Um, oh, in print books. In print, yeah, in yeah. print. Another interesting thing, that retail and club channels, which includes e-retailers and physical bookstores, was up 2%, and mass merchandisers were down 3%. And that's like Target, Costco, Walmart, Mm. drugstores, things of that nature. So it seems like if I'm creating a story about what's going on here, is that the people who shop at Walmart, Costco, Target for books are going online, Uh right? And then... But and there's some rallying around physical bookstores. That's what it looks like it's happening. Mm-hmm. Does yeah, that sound about is, right? Mm-hmm. And two weeks ago, we did the we had our grand and glorious rant about how the state of books is not actually mm-hmm. as terrible as uh, press would have you believe. And this overall increase in yeah. sales in most formats uh, is another point in that direction. That also, adult fiction is not strong. Right. Adult you know, fiction is, a, a 1% strong. increase in the first half of the year is not a huge increase, but it's an increase yeah, right. nonetheless. Um, in print titles, I would be interested in seeing what the ebook titles are and what overall book sales look like um, year over year. But we're not we're not dying, and the print book does not seem to actually be in no, decline. No, it's not. It's not. Um, and Data, baby. Juvenile fiction, like YA, I mean, if you just look at the numbers, 14% up. Adult fiction, 13% down. I mean, mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing is people who used to read only adult fiction are trying YA out. Yep, I don't know if that's a, a good... I mean, I'm not going to be the one that says that's good or bad for the future of books. I have no idea. But that's that seems to be a trend for sure. Yeah, um, I think it's... I don't want to... I don't think I even have a particular opinion just about people who haven't read YA before bleeding into YA or mm-hmm. trying it out. But in general, the flourishing of the internet seems to have opened up reading communities and, and helped people cross genres and bust out of the reading bubbles that they had been in or sort of like self described and self defined things that you just read and didn't read anything else. And, um, because there's so much access to crossover material now. So I think it's really great that there Mm -hmm. are people who have never read YA before that are trying YA. I think we're also seeing the same thing with romance, with sci-fi, with mysteries and thrillers, um, that, that because of online communities, um, and the way that we can talk to each other and the way that we can see information about mm-hmm. books, people don't tend, don't tend to stay within those walls quite yeah. so much of I'll read. It's, it's like those uh, music fans who say like, Oh, I'll, I'll listen to anything but country. <laughs> um, I think books have had a lot of those people and it's, I'll read anything, but fill in like the genre that you like to kick on here. And people are trying to, are, are starting to, pick up those genres that they previously would have ignored or said that that's the one thing they won't touch and do some crossover experimentation. Adult fiction sales in the first half of 2013 were 74 million and change, and now it's down to 64 million change. In 2013, YA was 66 and change, and now it's 76 and change. Is this the first time that YA is selling more in aggregate than adult fiction? I don't know. That would be interesting. I wonder about the years of Harry Potter. Yeah, maybe those years. The other thing I was thinking too is we didn't, we haven't had a big adult phenomenon this year. Like 
Last year, we still had Gone Girl, and we had a Dan mm-hmm. Brown, and we still had more Fifty Shades yeah, bleed there in was 2013. Shades, but... We're in 2014, like as we saw from that 20 best-selling books, we've had The Goldfinch, which came out last mm-hmm. fall. And I think The Goldfinch is the closest that we've come to having a big adult title that breaks into yeah. like general right. pop culture. Like The but, Help or whatever, yeah, that just but everyone not, is reading. But The Goldfinch has not nearly done no, like The Help God, or no. what a Dan Brown title does, or certainly what... Fifty Shades of Grey does, mm-hmm. and that's that, that's the thing that everybody in publishing is waiting to see. Like, what what is this next title going to be? That's a surprise breakout yeah. that bubbles up into, you know, it's the thing that every time you go to get your hair done, both people on both sides of you are talking <laughs> about that thing. Right? Have you read it? What do you think about it? So right. on and so forth. Um, so that's interesting. On the whole, it seems like it's not it's not a sky is falling situation, yeah. and you can depending on how nervous you are about individual parts of the the trend lines, you can decide what to be worried about there, if anything. Um, Interesting stuff there, though. Oh, not good news for the industry, at least as I can tell. Again, mm-hmm. the bookseller, I mentioned them earlier, they're, they're a really good publishing magazine. Um, did a, uh, is linked to a story about the Authors Licensing and Collection Society, which is, as far as I can tell, a trade organization for authors in the U.K., and they said that the typical income for a professional author in 2013 was just 11,000 pounds, um, which is off 40% since 2005. Man. So over the last eight years, um, professional author income in the UK is down 40%. So I'm guessing that just means anyone who writes and makes money off their writing. It, it's, I can't yeah. really see what that means. Um and I think that's worth noting that's 5,000 pounds below the income level that's considered to be a socially acceptable right. standard of living. And this is author earnings off their writing. So it doesn't mean mm-hmm. if you have a teaching gig right. or you're also, you know, you have a day job or a freelance or whatever. Um, this is off their writing. So, right, the, t- <sighs> right, so hmm. the typical income for a professional author in 2005 was 12,330 pounds. Um, if 11,000 pounds is 5,000 below the income level that's considered socially acceptable, that would mean that 16,000 pounds is the income level that's considered to be socially acceptable standard of living. Yeah. And even in 2005, professional authors were below that. They were at 12,330. Yeah. So pounds are what, about $1.75 now, something like that? I can mm-hmm, never keep this like straight. I, I don't check uh, every day just to see. Um <laughs> So I have an that's app for this. <laughs> clearly not good. It strikes me that 2005 is an interesting. Um, I wonder why they chose 2005. Was that the last time they've done the study? Hmm. It doesn't really say. I mean, I, I I don't see a link to the whole study here, so I I can't say if they've cherry picked this to make it look the worst. Because yeah. remember, we did that publishing income um, chart from a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you looked over nine years, it was down or yeah. flat. But if you looked over five years, it had rebounded off the bottom. So I, I don't know. This could be um, mm-hmm. uh, this could be some sort of cherry pick thing. But on the whole, well, I, so there's even, hmm, I don't know what the, I, I mean, it's down. What do so you want to say? So this is farther down in the piece. Yeah, I mean, farther down in the piece, it notes that this number, the 11,000 pounds per year, is professional authors. But when they survey um, all writers, including professional authors and those who class themselves as occasional and part-time writers, mm-hmm. the typical income was 4,000 pounds per year, which was the same as it was 
in 2005, but was a drop from the typical income of all writers um, from two, from mm-hmm. 2000, which was 6,333 pounds. So I think things are changing for professional authors, but writers as a whole, people who make their whole living as writers or part of their living, their living as writers seems to be more consistent. And the overarching headline is that they've never been making that much money. That much money. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good thing to notice. Like no typical writer in the UK has been making off of writing what is considered to be an acceptable, the money for an acceptable standard of living, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is a sad, it's a sad headline. It's definitely sad for books and for the state of art in general that many writers and many artists can't make full-time livings creating their work. Mm-hmm. But it's also not a new story. No, like, it's not a new like story. Like the number of, I bet if we could see these numbers for. But it's down. I think that's the down thing, right? That it's like, that it's, it's down, down for per, so yeah. much. Um, and later in the piece, um, uh, Solomon, who was the spokesperson, says um, publishers' profits are going up. Our concern is that authors are getting a smaller share than they used to, which might very well be the case. Yeah. You know, and I, part of it is royalties on ebooks, as, as ebooks become a bigger and bigger part of publishers income uh, we may as a sort of people interested may, we may see those rates change mm-hmm. um, over time i get a couple larger scale points here you would think if income is down 40 percent, we'd be like there's so many fewer people writing and there's so many fewer interesting books for us to read which i think both you and i have talked about before here in other places we're just not seeing Mm-mm. it's not like the number of titles that seem interesting for us to read are down a commensurate 40 percent. and i think the lesson there is a people don't write just for money right right or and or b they think they'll be the exception or they might be the exception yeah it's like I just think- because people don't make money off gambling of course, the rational thing is not to gamble, but people gamble for other reasons than that it's rational to gamble. Sure. People write books for other reasons that they're going to make money. They right. want to and do if, it. They think they might do it. They, if you're writing with the sole goal of making money, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, or most likely <laughs> yeah, going to be like disappointed. A, a, there's a 99.9% chance you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if there were $0 to be paid to authors, there would still be people writing interesting books. Now, maybe not as many as we want, but they'd still be there. Right. And I think if we take as a sort of morally neutral state of the world Mm -hmm. that authors, that most authors do not make a full-time income from their writing, if you can just say that's the way things are and accept that as the way things are, um, at least for the purposes of a thought experiment, that's the way things have always been, but it seems like we're we're able to talk about it more now, and authors are starting to talk about it more publicly than they ever have mm-hmm. before. Um, there's this sort of smoke and mirrors glamour machine around professional authors, and so typical readers might you know go to an author's event at a bookstore while an author's on tour for a new title and think this person's full-time job is writing. They just get to travel all the time and they, you know, they wake up and wrap themselves in their velvet dressing gown and <laughs> light a cigarette and sit down at their typewriter and they spend the day making art and drinking coffee. Uh, and then they get to tour around talking to people. But um, right, I think the internet has something to do with this too. And the writers talk to each other yeah. about the experience of being a writer or about being a, pro- 
professional author. And one of the things that they're really starting to talk about is their day jobs. Um, I, I have several author friends who are solid mid-list authors. They get good contracts, um, what would be considered good contracts for their books, you know, decent royalties, but they work a day job or maybe they work two part-time jobs. Um, a, a friend who's a YA mid-list author works three jobs and writes YA books and gets hmm. contracts, but is still a long way off um, from her contracts being the thing that could pay her bills. And she's not the exception. That's the rule. It's just the thing uh, that we're starting to talk about more. Even uh, Jeff Kinney, who writes the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, were, has kept his full-time job. Dude makes millions of dollars a year, but he's kept a full-time job. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing to say. It's like, you can write books and make some money off of it, but it's only going to be a piece of your puzzle. Yeah, unless you are, unless you get really lucky, unless you're John Green or you're like Tony Morrison mm -hmm. or James Patterson or Dan Brown, you should probably assume that even if you get a good contract and you have good sales, uh, you don't have to appear on the bestseller list. But if you do well you're probably still going to need an outside source yep. of income or to, you know, have a partner or some sort of family financial situation that doesn't require you to or make live modestly more money. and, right. you know, you know, don't, don't, um, live too high on the hog. Um, now I don't want, I, I think people myself, I think people should get paid for the work that they do. So yes, for sure. that's, that's a separate issue. Um, but I think it is an interesting thought experiment. Like what are we worried about? Mm -hmm. as if money is disappearing from publishing. Um, and the worry, I think, on the reader side is there won't be as many cool books for me to be interested in. And all this downward pressure on the authors doesn't right. seem to have that effect. Um, and maybe there's some tipping point. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it's $0. I don't know that maybe it's that you don't see anyone ever making money full-time off of it. Maybe just that carrot is enough, like mm -hmm. that you might um, roll... Uh, a hard eight on craps is maybe the thing that keeps you going, even though it doesn't make rational sense. But I think people, I think people get non-economic benefit to writing and publishing and telling stories um, that is hard to quantify and keeps them going even in the face of not having much financial. So it's not oh. unlike blogging for us when we had our oh, individual yeah. and, blogs. And like we didn't make what, 12 bucks? I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, we did it because we liked it and we wanted to connect with people. Yeah. And that that is more resilient, I think, than, than we give it credit well, for. Yeah, I think it's the you know, letters of a young poet, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you, the first thing that you think about is writing and the last thing that you think about before you go to bed mm -hmm. is writing, you're a writer. And this is the reason that writers write. They write because they have to um, and because they love it and they want to tell stories and to connect with readers. And it really is gravy if you get a book deal. You know, it's, uh, it's not getting a book deal that makes you a writer. It's creating the thing that makes you a writer. Uh, and writers are talking to each other about that and talking to readers about that online as well that the financial incentive and I think you're right about that like the carrot of you could maybe be John Green you could get lucky mm -hmm. um, you could be Donna Tartt you could be Veronica Roth you could get lucky and be that one is exciting and that's incentive to go through the crazy rigmarole of trying mm -hmm. to get an agent and trying to get published but I don't think that's the reason that people start that most writers start writing books or maybe it's a piece of you know it's part of the reason pie Right. That and, like, yeah. well, and I could do for, this and I probably won't, but maybe, right. maybe like, I will. As for what we're afraid of, I think you're right that we're afraid that something will eventually 
uh, demotivate writers mm-hmm. from writing and we won't have as many good new books as readers to have access to. I think we're also on a philosophical level worried about the devaluing mm-hmm. of books and writing. And that's a piece that comes up in a lot of the debates about um, Amazon and the way that books are priced and sold. And what does it mean about how we think about art and what art and writing mean in our culture if all we're willing to pay for a book is $1.99? Or, um, but- Again, the thing that, and again, we don't have to go into this a million years because we could go on forever about this. But the thing that gets me about that is we've had used bookstores where you, or in libraries and library mm-hmm. sales where you could get dirt cheap or free books. Right. So, like, yeah, I, I guess I don't understand that, it. <laughs> I wasn't saying there was good logic to no, that. No, no, but I, that's the part that I. I'm not saying I haven't figured out either, but like, because I kind of feel the same way. It's like, oh, really? Three ninety nine for an ebook? And I'm like, wait. Or I could go check out the print copy at the library that cost mm-hmm. me nothing. Well, I think how we is can, that not like we, we attach can, other value that's not yeah, economic? That's I think what we happens. can we can look at the music industry for some comfort there. You know, like I used to pay twelve ninety nine for a new. CD. Um, and now I pay $9.95 a month for an unlimited Spotify mm-hmm. subscription. But I still really value music. I think our culture still really values music as a form of art. We talk about it. We share videos all the time. People make playlists to send to each other. There are all kinds of apps and ways to connect with it. And the ways that uh, music labels and music artists make money have definitely changed in the last well, 10 or 15 years because of technology. Too. But people don't talk about music as actually being less valuable, and it hasn't become a less important part of our culture. I was thinking about that, too. Um, you know, we, we work in a small digital company, and we're always looking for different ways of trying things. And publishers are increasingly, too. And I was thinking, I mean, isn't, some, isn't it incumbent? on author's own behalf for them to innovate as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't even really consider self-publishing at this point innovating. Like, that's just, that's now an established thing. Like, what right, have musicians that's just an alternative. done? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, the thing that um, I see authors talk about with each other, and I saw it just earlier this week on Twitter, was someone saying, like, well, it's not fair to compare music artists to writers because musicians make money from their concerts. Most mm-hmm. of their money comes from live shows rather than from album sales. And book authors depend on book sales. And it's like, well, that's currently the case, but it right. doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have you to be. You could decide that, you know, if you had a big enough audience, you were going to price your books really low and create cool events that people would want to pay to come to to see you and maybe to see a bunch of other authors because there's money there um, and you can get money. People will pay you for an awesome experience in a way that they might not be willing to pay uh, such a high ticket price to buy a book anymore. Um, Well, even just something as simple as like, you've seen this in the music industry for uh, several decades going all the way back to the Beatles and Apple Records and through the modern era of like bad boy records and Dr. Dre and Jay-Z and all these folks where the artist became the label. They became their own publisher. Mm -hmm. And you haven't seen anything equivalent in in books. And one reason is that the money is not this, like what um, the Beatles were making in money and what Jay-Z were making in money is crazy compared to what um, authors could make. But you could see a collective of authors getting together and say, we're becoming our own publishing house, like a Mm co-op. And we're going to take all that money that goes to giant midtown offices and office buildings, and they get paid out in dividends to the shareholders of these giant international conglomerates, which is what the big five are, make no mistake. Yeah, for sure. And suck some of that margin out and give it back to the authors. That's just, I'm not saying that would work, but what I am saying is those kinds of recalibrations 
could happen. And I think mm-hmm. technology makes it more and more likely. Yeah, we know from working in a virtual office with people who work for our company all over North America. Right. Um, we know the amount of money that you save, just not renting a small office space, <laughs> just the amount of money that pu- a, a small publishing conglomerate could save from not having Manhattan rent to pay for um, and not having to pay New York Times advertising rates, but figure out you know uh, how to market their books. Uh, one thing that authors have gotten really good at is reaching readers directly. And so if 15 authors who wrote similar kinds of books and had some, yeah. uh, some interesting crossover in their audiences did start a conglomerate where they were going to publish each other. They were going to work on marketing plans. They would go on tours together and create fun, awesome events that people would pay to attend. Uh, there are so many ways to, to crack this. And I just, I worry for publishing because publishing is slower to change, I think, mm-hmm. than, um, than the music industry was. And also because publishing is pretty good at saying, well, we've never done that thing before, or this is the way we do things. Mm-hmm. So, so we're just going to keep doing things like, well, you can't talk about, you know, book sales and music sales the same way because authors don't make money from events as if it's just not possible that authors could make money from events. Um, I want to see publishers blow up their thinking about that. And it would be really interesting to see some authors uh, do it for publishers. And I'm not denigrating or um, the the part of the value chain that a publishing house adds to the to what gets produced in books. I think that value is still really there, but it doesn't necessarily need to be organized in the way that it is right now. Right, and or, no mistake that some of the most profitable, successful authors out there are like John Green and Neil Gaiman who go on roadshows and yep. they charge for events yeah, and no they Gaiman do multimedia. did big events in New York last mm-hmm. week that people paid hefty ticket prices to attend. And not everyone's going to be him, and maybe not many, but you could start to imagine other kinds of ways um, that authors could figure out it, ways to, yeah, to make it, money. It, it doesn't have to be a collective of authors who decide to functionally self-publish. You can create a small company. You can hire professional right. editors. Like You think there aren't great editors working in New York publishing houses who, could be, who couldn't be lured away for like a, a nice salary and some flexibility and the option to work at home mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that exists. You could, you know, freelance book designers. It's not an impossibility and it would be really awesome to see somebody take a crack at it. Yeah. And again, I don't know enough about the ins, ins and outs of actually producing a book to know which pieces um, would be the hardest. And so any of these suggestions are kind of bogus, except the larger point of, you know, their uh, author innovation is something that, is incumbent on them to think about. You know, right. they should see these numbers and think, man, there, can't we do something? Rather than, boy, the world is ending and I guess there's just no money in this mm-hmm. and this is just the way it's going to be. Or can't my publisher do something? Yeah, right, right. Remember, your publisher is out for their shareholders on the whole, yeah. um, as great as they are. And as much as most of the people who are there who love books, like they have a different job. All right, let's do a sponsor. Speaking of s- sponsorships, <laughs> speaking of alternate ways of making money. Um, let's talk about Random House Audiobooks. They're back this week. You Good go to time try for tryaudiobooks.com. It's a great time for summer. Um, so we're outdoors a lot during the summer. We're traveling a lot during the summer. We're mowing the yard a lot during the summer. So you have a lot of time where you're doing things that you can't be reading print or, or um, ebooks, but you might be able to listen to something. You're on a road trip. You're commuting back and forth. You're in an airport uh, oh, yes. waiting for four hours 
uh, for your connecting flight, but there's storms in Chicago. You're standing in the grocery store trying to not go homicidal on the guy writing a check <laughs> right. in the express lane. That's right. You're cooking. You're you're making a big meal. You're outdoor grilling. You can set up your um, you can set up your speakers out there and listen to something. So if you Random House Audiobooks has a really cool website called tryaudiobooks.com, and they provide suggestions for what to listen to while you're doing different things. You're cooking. You're gardening. You're if knitting. That's, you're, needing, you're knitting, you're on a road trip. Um, you can listen to your favorite author or a new bestseller um, or try something else into your routine. I think the last time they were on the response to the show, I suggested, and we had some people email about this mm. saying, you know what? I, I uh, was listening to audiobooks while I was watching the baseball game the other huh. night. And that, uh, I was listening to audiobook while I was playing video games, which is not something I thought of before, but most video games. Oh, um, man. My brain couldn't multitask that way. Good on you. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it depends on the genre or whatever you're listening to. Um, so that's something else. And I had a couple of emails suggest, like, I've never listened to audiobooks. Can you recommend one to get started? Um, hmm. I'm going back. To, I think I've talked about this before. But my, my darling Michelle had never listened to an audiobook before. And I got her to listen to The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. And it was narrated by Jim Dale. And she was ensorcelled, entranced. Um, enchanted. <laughs> Is ensorcelled an actual word? Yes, that means you have become um, sorcelled. I think I think it is. It means you've been you've been put under the spell of a sorcery. I believe. I want it to be a word. It sounds lovely. Um, anyway, so and Jim Dale, he's also done a wonderful series of narrations for the Harry Potter series. Mm-hmm. But uh, Michelle keeps asking me, what else like the Morg- the Night Circus narrated by Jim Dale recommendations do you have? And I, I keep coming up blank. But that is a great one to have an experience. This is fiction, so mm-hmm. you know know that going in. So that would be my pick if you're brand new to audiobooks, you're looking for something enchanting. The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern is my pick. Do you have do you have a pick? I've got a couple. One that I haven't listened to on audio, but that I read was Mindy Kaling is Everyone Hanging Out ah. Without Me and Other Concerns, uh, which she's great. The book is really funny. Uh, it's a, And it's smart. It's a really fun, smart memoir about being a young woman and career stuff and being in Hollywood, what it's like to be uh, a, a woman writing in television, which is largely uh, male-dominated. If you dug Tina Fey's Bossy Pants, it's a great read. Um, and it's published by Random House. They produce the audiobook as well. I've heard really great things about it. I haven't heard that one. Um, one of my favorites um, was a road trip audiobook experience from, I think we listened to it last summer, um, was World War Z by Max Brooks. It's a full cast. And the story is it's not an action-packed story. It's an oral history of what happened during uh, the zombie apocalypse, basically. And uh, the the rotating narrators, different actors playing different characters, it was really fun and interesting to listen to because being in the car, especially listening to it, sort of felt like listening to an NPR report about like the craziest day ever in news. (laughs) Mm. Um, But it's the day that the zombies come and what happens and how they figured it out. And you get, you know, scientists being flown in from all over the world talking about the thing they're studying. And uh, I thought it was a really fun listening experience. Um, At one point, we were stuck on the same bridge for an hour not moving. And I didn't even really care Mm. because because the story was great. Uh, So that's that's a fun one. I think if you're uh, looking for something that you can do um, in a road, you know, in a road trip situation with travel, especially if you have to share your selections 
with someone else. My husband and I don't share much book taste. So when we have to mm. pick audiobooks for a trip together, it comes down to like what's going to be entertaining and as close to watching television together as we could get. <laughs> like our TV taste is really similar, but for some reason books are just not. So we go for that sort of, you know, very engaging, well-written, but action-y stuff in our audiobooks. And World War Z was great for that. Um, I just realized that one of the new books that you're about to talk about is Random House Audio. Oh. So maybe, maybe we'll pick up there. Sure, we can pick up there. You want me to talk about new books? Uh, go for it. Uh, well, actually, it's Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands is mm-hmm. also Random House, and it's available in audiobook. So why don't you start there? Yeah, it's by Chris Bojalian. He is I just friend. did that because I didn't know how to say his last name. I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> nice. Sorry, go. I, I <laughs> uh, so Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands. It's by Chris Bojalian. He's a friend of the site. He's been a good friend to Book Riot. And so we want to shout out That's true. Uh, that his new book has come out. It's about Emily Shepard, who is a homeless teen. Uh, She is homeless because a nuclear plant had a cataclysmic meltdown where she lived in Vermont's Northeast Kingdom and her father, um, who was in charge of the plant, uh, died. Uh, She is hated because her father became the most hated man in America after this meltdown happened. So she's kind of on the run. Her mother died as well. So she's homeless and alone. Uh, And instead of following social workers and her classmates, she takes off um, and survives on her own. Uh, It's a and then she kind of creates a new life for herself, inspired by her fo- favorite poet, Emily Dickinson. Uh, it's it's a great book. Chris Bojalian is, is a really fun, and in, he's an interesting, smart writer. These are engaging stories uh, that he tells. And this is my, I have a personal connection to this book that I think is um, a magic. Oh, yeah, I forgot about this. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So this is like the real reason that I wanted to shout, uh, to shout out Chris, because he's... <laughs> He's fun. He engages on the internet, but also this is a really random story about life on the book tournet. But you can sing most of Emily Dickinson's poems to the tune of the Gilligan's Island theme song. Mm. Um, and, and this is a thing that my 11th grade English teacher, Janine Dinas, hi, Miss Dinas, uh, taught us in class. Like I can very clearly remember sitting in 11th grade English singing, um, because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me. <laughs> That's so <laughs> funny. On Emily Dickinson's birthday, a few years ago, I wrote about this on Book Riot and Chris Bojillian read it and he was working on this book at the time. And there's a scene in the book now in Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands that connects to Emily Dickinson and Gilligan. That's so awesome. <laughs> because of like weird magic of the internet, he happened to see it while he was working on this book about Emily Dickinson. So I think that's particularly awesome. But we appreciate uh, Chris for what he's done to support Book Riot. And if you if this sounds good or you're just curious about how Emily Dickinson and Gilligan's Island can run together uh, in a story about a homeless teen after a nuclear meltdown, uh, you should check out Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands. Uh, Chris is uh, documenting his book tour on Twitter and Instagram right now, too, and that's a fun thing to watch. Or you could get it as an audiobook from Random House Audio, as Jeff said. That's right. All right, what else you got? Uh, Other new good stuff this week. Landline by Rainbow Rowell. It's her new adult title. Uh, If you have only met Rainbow Rowell through Eleanor and Park and Fangirl, her YA books, she started off her career uh, writing adult fiction. Her first novel is called Attachments. And we've got some folks on the Book Riot staff who really loved it. Uh, Landline is about a woman named Georgie McCool, which is a great name, uh, who's a TV writer. And she's about to get her big break, uh, like finally getting her own series that she and her writer partner have been working on forever, uh, but it's really affecting her marriage and her uh, her kids. 
this career family balance question uh, is coming up for her in a big way. She and her husband separate over the holidays. Uh, things are not going well, and she's staying in her parents' Uh, home, the home that she was raised in, uh, when she picks up the phone, the landline phone in her bedroom to call her husband, uh, where he's in Iowa visiting his family for the holidays and has their kids. And when he answers, it's him from when they were in college. What? Yeah. So she, in her present, you know, adult, stressed, career, family balance, marital problems state is talking to her husband, but the version of him from when they were young and first in love with each other and before they got engaged. And she doesn't know like if she's going crazy or if this is actually happening or if he knows that it's happening too, um, what it means. (laughs) But she continues to have these conversations with him as she starts to untangle what it is that she wants to do to solve these problems in her life. So it's really a story about being able to look at your past in order to solve your future or to make your future better. But it has some magical elements. Uh, Like a lot of Rainbow Rowell's writing, it also has really great pop culture references. There is so much 90s awesome stuff (laughs) in in this book. Um, I really enjoyed it. And it's out this week if you want to take a look. And this final book that's out this week is one of my favorite, favorite books of the year. Um, It's in the top three that I've read so far. It's called The Land of Love and Drowning by Tiffany Yannick. It's Man, it's fantastic. I keep resorting to like dazzling, magical, because I just haven't figured out a way to really Oh, talk. you've reverted to cliche speak. <laughs> I have. I haven't figured out a way to talk about this book really articulately. And it's been a couple of months since I've read it. So like, I've had plenty of time to think about it, but it's that good uh, that I'm just sort of stuck. Uh, it opens on transfer day in the Virgin Islands in the early 1900s when uh, the Virgin Islands were transferring in ownership from being owned by the British to being owned by the U.S. Um, And the story centers around a family that um, have some money. They have some infamous notoriety stuff. Uh, They have some family problems. There's love and there's lust. Uh, There is also incest. There's a curse. There's magic. Uh, And then there are several generations of people in the family sort of reaping the fallout from uh, their parents' mistakes, their ancestors' mistakes, but also sort of patching together this their family's legacy and their story. Uh, the writing is so, so, so beautiful. Um, I had to dole this book out to myself in 20-page chunks because I was not willing to have it ever end. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, like that game you play in your head of like, right. if I just go slower, it won't ever be over. <laughs> it's so good. Her uh, her writing has this kind of music to it. You can feel the wind in your hair and you can smell the salt uh, of the oceans. You can sort of hear that rhythm of the islands in the way that Tiffany Unique writes. But it's just I, all of the words that you want to come up with. It's dazzling and sparkling and wonderful and surprising and challenging in the way that um, that good books challenge us to think about things that are difficult and uncomfortable sometimes. But it's also really enchanting, so you don't really mind that you're being asked to read some difficult scenes. 
I don't. I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. I'm, I've been <laughs> rendered, I have been rendered inarticulate by Tiffany Yannick and uh, Land of Love and Drowning. So that's also one that's certainly worth taking a look at and putting on your summer reading list. Uh, and it's, it's her debut novel. Uh, I think she's going to be a big deal uh, pretty soon. So I'm. I've been really happy to have read that and to be able to talk about it. And now it's finally out. And so maybe, you, maybe one of you can read it, and we can either be inarticulate together or you can help me figure out how to talk about it. Uh, we, all, we should also give a shout out to a paperback original this week by one of our own. Uh, Andrew Schaefer has How to Survive a Sharknado, which is exactly what it sounds like. You know, I've been wondering. What like, how does one, I mean, it seems hard to survive a Sharknado. It, well, I mean, it's a tornado of sharks, so it's terrifying. And, right. And it, I think, would require a specialized skill set. Yes. Uh, to survive. And you can find out what that specialized skill set is in How to Survive a Sharknado mm-hmm. um, by Andrew Schaefer. And he has a few co-writers, but Andrew Schaefer is a Book Riot contributor. Uh, we love him and we're, we're stoked. We have so many great writers on our staff now Definitely. That, have, uh, that have had books come out or that are having books come out. And yeah, so that's we can't talk about those, but there's more coming. Right, there more are coming. more coming. Uh, so you'll be hearing more about that. Uh, and those are the new books this week. I think that's our that's show. That's our show. That is we're, our show. Um, as always, you can follow us on Twitter. She is Rebecca Shinsky on Twitter, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. I'm at Reading Ape. If you want to leave us a, re- to, uh, a review on iTunes, that is just great. Um, you can give us feedback through email or through Twitter. Uh, our email address is podcastatbookriot.com. If you want to find show notes for this show and see past episodes and look in comments and what people have said, a lot of comments on the posts. I, yeah. We've never really talked about that, but we often get good feedback just in the comments on the posts. And there, if you go to bookriot.com slash podcast, you can find all of the show notes there. Thanks so much to 99designs and Random House Audio. So that's 99designs.com slash bookriot. If you want to go check out um, them out, they let them know that lets them know you came from us. And tryaudiobooks.com is Random, House, uh, is Random House Audio's site to help you find something you would like to listen to and- for whatever it is you're doing. Subscribe to the Riot Read, which is our monthly uh, book subscription service for one new release at riotread.com or check out what the first selection was. Poke around. Subscribe by the 15th to get the August selection. If you subscribe after July 15th, you'll get your first book in September. That's right. And so we'll be back with an all new show next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Talk to you later, Rebecca. Bye, Jeff. Bye, Jeff.